I've also been accused by liberal and progressive friends and colleagues of upholding a patriarchal system because of my choices. And I have fought back against that in many ways. Um, and I really believe in agency and in choice. And I don't believe that liberal Western egalitarianism is the end all and be all of all of our questions. So because of that, I don't, I wouldn't jump and say everyone should do everything the same. And at the same time, I do want a Jewish community in which my son and my daughter, I have two children, in which they both feel needed, welcomed, and in which their, their talents and their abilities that Hashem gave them are given space for them to, to love uh, being leaders in the Jewish community. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This podcast is called The Orthodox Conundrum, and many of us self-identify as Orthodox, pray in Orthodox synagogues, affiliate with Orthodox institutions, and consider ourselves part of the wider Orthodox world. But is that term Orthodox, and perhaps the concept of denominations in general, a help or a hindrance? Do denominations lead to the building of walls that separate us, and the creation of institutions that are cornered into an inability to change. And let's say that they do. Is that a bad thing? Perhaps creating such boundaries is necessary, as without them, Torah Judaism cannot effectively or functionally operate. As I was considering these questions, I thought about a fascinating book authored by Reform Rabbi Herbert Wiener in 1969, entitled Nine and a Half Mystics. The book is a kind of personal diary where he talks about encountering various Jewish personalities who had a mystical outlook, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to Martin Buber, from Gershom Sholem to a young Rav Steinsaltz and more. Rabbi Wiener doesn't pretend to be something that he's not, and the various Orthodox rabbis who meet him are largely, though not entirely, accepting of him for who he is. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, for example, bluntly explains why he disagrees with Reform Judaism and critiques some of Rabbi Wiener's articles that he had published in Commentary magazine but he also shows respect and a demonstrable lack of animosity toward his reform visitor. And Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook, the son of Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak Cohen Cook, calls Rabbi Wiener into a study to tell him how upset he is when the reform movement opens a school in Jerusalem. But he also repeatedly asks Rabbi Wiener to take off his kippah when they visit together, because his wearing it in Rabbi Cook's yeshiva seems like a type of imperialism, and it would be wrong for a group, says Rav Cook, to impose their way of life on somebody who is not part of that group. These are important questions to consider, and given the radical realignment that may be possible in the wake of October 7th and its aftermath, it's worth having some of these conversations right now. For that reason, I was honored to speak with Dr. Michal Biton. Truthfully, my conversation with Michal was precipitated not just by a desire to talk about the future of orthodoxy, but even more by what I think is the importance of highlighting people who could help lead Torah Judaism into an as-yet-unknown future. I feel that much, though of course not all, of our leadership has failed in this hour, and we must, we must look at new directions in order to highlight new voices. Dr. Bitone is one of those newer voices, and I really enjoyed talking to her about many different topics, including the subtly changing attitudes of American Jews towards the events in Israel now that the war is 100 days old, the impact of anti-Israel activity on the psyche of the American Jewish community, her role as Rosh Kihila at the downtown Minion in Manhattan, and what the shul is doing to stay within the boundaries of Jewish law while trying to create a new model of openness. 
what she calls a covenantal traditional community that follows Orthodox halacha, along with inculcating an egalitarian aesthetic. The opportunities and limits of female participation in the synagogue, her work studying Sephardic and Syrian Jewry, the problems with institutions, and more. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I released two new articles. The first, entitled The God Who Hides, is a short exploration of the experience of divine hiddenness, as well as the surprising ways that God sometimes reveals himself. In the second, Killing Yourself for the Torah, I discuss the military exemptions that people who learn Torah are granted by the Israeli army, and I suggest that even if people continue to receive these exemptions, those who do should be required to have a more intense schedule than they do currently, without, for example, 10 weeks of annual vacation. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Dr. Michal Biton-Setten is a Torah teacher, thought leader, and sociologist of American Jews. She is the Rosh Kila of the Downtown Minion in New York City and a visiting researcher at NYU Wagner. Michal earned her doctorate from New York University, where she is now directing the first national study of Sephardic Jews in the United States. She is an alumna of the Wexner Graduate Fellowship and was selected in 2018 for inclusion in 36 Under 36 in the New York Jewish Week as a public intellectual with public values. Michal is a Maimonides Fund Fellow, a New Pluralist Field Builder, a Shalom Hartman Institute Fellow, and a Sachs Scholar. She lives in New York with her husband and two children. Dr. Michal Bitone, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about new directions for Orthodox Judaism, specifically in the wake of October 7th. And frankly, the word Orthodox itself is something that we should talk about. That day, October 7th, Simchat Torah, and the events that have taken place subsequently in Israel and throughout the world might be a type of opportunity, as perhaps insensitive as it is to say that, an opportunity for Torah Jews to find new ways of expressing their Judaism that's both halachic and can also solve some of the problems that have accrued to Orthodox communal life. But before we get there, Michal, I'd like to first open up by hearing about your background and how you became the person you are today. You are a Jewish leader. How did you get into that space? Sure. And, and let me know how, how much, you, how deep you want me to go into my own background. Um, I was born in Argentina uh, to a rabbinic family. So I grew up in a home that was always very involved in the Jewish community. Grew up in, in South America, moved to the States. Uh, and I think just from my home, it was clear to me that I wanted to remain involved uh, in the leadership of the Jewish community. Eventually, I pursued a PhD at NYU. Uh, I've worked in the pluralistic, liberal, organized Jewish community at Hartman and other places in the last decade. And seven years ago, I also co-founded an independent minyan in Lower Manhattan called the Downtown Minyan, uh, in which I serve as the Rosh Keila. Okay, so we're going to talk about all of that. I want to first start with some preliminaries, because when, Michal, you and I were scheduling this interview and talking about what we should discuss, because my primary motivation was to have one of these new young voices, which I think the Orthodox community needs. At the same time, you told me it's very difficult to have this conversation after October 7th in the same way that we would have had the conversation on October 6th or earlier. And I have the feeling you meant not just that we're preoccupied with what's going on in Israel, but that fundamentally things probably have shifted. Can you tell me what you mean that 
our conversation today is different than it would have been four months ago? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of layers there. One of them is just, I think, human and emotional. Uh, I'm afraid that Jews outside of Israel, with as much as we care, we're far away. And you can have this like compassion fatigue. And I want to resist uh, speaking in a way that would just um, not acknowledge uh, that my friends and family and my Jewish people in Israel are literally still at war. Your own family, you know, you were talking before in the army and and I think that it's it's actually almost like a mitzvah to insist in saying we're not going to do normalcy as usual uh, here in diaspora, even if we could in some ways. Um, so that's one that's one layer. And I, I think also as an educator, I feel that strongly and what it means to educate and lead my community in a way that resists it. And then also, I, I think not just for me, but for all of us, I think we need to be asking ourselves, how has our view of the world shifted? What are our priorities? Uh, who are the people that we are allying with and, and working with? Um, what are those petty disagreements that really don't matter so much when the stakes are so high? So I, I feel like in general, we, we need to, we, we cannot go back to the same conversations we had beforehand. Uh, it's been a rapture, so much pain, and also just a lot of clarity. Uh, so I think th those were like the two main layers that I had in mind. Then I want to ask you about that compassion fatigue and the experience that you're having right now. You're in New York. I'm in Israel. So I haven't been back to the United States since before Simchat Torah. I don't know what people are really thinking there. And obviously, any experience that you have is also, by definition, somewhat anecdotal. But still, as a Rosh Kila, as someone who is more in touch with the United States community than I am, I'm curious what you mean by compassion fatigue. Are people in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox community, experiencing October 7th differently now in January as we record this than they did a couple of months ago? Are they starting to, quote unquote, forget about it, to move on with their lives normally? Or have you been able to, and others like you, to resist that and prevent them from moving on in a normal way? What is the general attitude right now? Yeah, and I would say that my experience is anecdotal, but I am reflecting different communities. I'm also part of the Sephardi community in Brooklyn. A lot of my relatives are rabbis in many different places across New York. I, I would say, and I'm going to talk right now just about like even Orthodox communities, that even though like intellectually and emotionally um, we are all with Israel and reading the news and supporting, it is impossible when you are far away and when you are not having to think all the time, where's my mamad, my safe room, you know what I mean? Things like that. It is impossible from a human perspective to maintain that same level of constantly worrying and thinking about it. And I, and I don't even want to judge that. I think that's like a human experience. That's why I actually think that leaders and, and educators have a responsibility to figure out so far away and with time that is passing, this work could take a long time. How do we make sure that we continue to have ways of not just supporting financially, but being emotionally invested in a way that is human? And, and being human means that when we're far away and time passes, things change. I had, you know, I went last week... Um, I ate out in a restaurant for, um, it was like one of the first times that I did something like that since October 7th. And it was really hard for me. I I, I did not want to do that for a long time. I didn't want to like, I'm like, I don't want to live life as usual. Um, and it was hard for me just even walking in and being like, this is like a Brooklyn restaurant. Everything feels normal. And meanwhile, I have so many friends who still have spouses in in in, in the army, in the Miluim. And um, so, so I do think, but, but, but at the same time as a leader, I think that almost like you can't expect people so far away to have a certain level of emotional intensity. It just doesn't work, you know, humanly. So we have to figure out, we have to figure out and we have to work really hard and double down on how to have 
a way that the gap between our communities doesn't grow so much. So that should be done with solidarity missions. Um, I, I had a program last night in my apartment. We brought in two survivors from Faraza to speak to our community, uh, insisting on prayer. There's like a whole host of ways that we can insist on it, but it's not easy. And I think there's a lot of communities where we were not doing enough of that thinking and that work. That's really interesting because I remember after that big rally in Washington, D.C. in November at which you spoke, my big fear, and I wrote this in an article, was that this would be seen as a culmination rather than as a starting point. In other words, okay, now we, the larger American Jewish community, have done our part. We went to the rally. We've stated what we think. Now let's move on with regular life. I don't mean that's a conscious way of thinking, but I was afraid that that's what would happen. And a lot of people told me, don't worry, we know this has to be a way of being inspired to do more rather than a way of saying that we're already done. But I'm not sure that's really been true. I just don't know. As you say, it's impossible for people to maintain the same emotional intensity day after day, month after month, particularly as you say, you're not running for your safe room. Yeah, so that's why I think I think uh, I'm not here like wagging my finger and judging because I just don't think that's useful. But I do think there's like there's work to be done. There's work to be done to make sure that like that the gap between us doesn't keep growing. The one I feel like awful saying this. It's not even a silver lining. But the one, the one thing that complicates all this is anti-Semitism in the U.S. Uh, anti-Semitism in the U.S. means that most U.S. Jews who conf- who, who experience anti-Semitism understand that we're not back to like our normal pre-October 7th moment. But I think, you know, I, I think that there's a difference between, I work with a lot of college students, and there's a difference between feeling embattled at NYU and between, you know, going into Gaza. And and there's something that we have to somehow keep up. Uh, I don't want, I don't mean to sound like foolish, but we have to insist on keeping top of mind as to the different layers of war that are going on here and what it means to Make sure that uh, that that we keep. I mean, the first week of October seventh, I was texting friends and relatives every day. I don't do that anymore at the same rate, which is normal. They are not living it the same way, but that actually means that we have to be a bit intentional. Um, you know, in my in in my own community, I I have I insist we have like a twenty to thirty minute program still at the end of every Shabbat, uh, in which I wait for the time in which the shul is fullest. We read every name of every hostage. We read prayers. We sing. We do a tikva. Uh, not every shul does that, and I don't. Also, don't know if I'm not saying every shul should, but I do think every community needs to ask itself: What are we doing right now to make sure that we're still, you know, um, keeping this top of mind in a way that doesn't the fights against the distance, the very human distance. I'm going to ask you some questions about your community in a moment. But one more question about the experience of American Jews right now. You mentioned anti-Semitism. And that anti-Semitism, as you say, can be a reminder that things are not normal. But one of the things that I get nervous about, perhaps incorrectly, is that the anti-Israel propaganda and the levels of vitriol spewed against the Jewish state can have a different effect. It can have the effect of people feeling on the defensive and eventually perhaps almost unconsciously agreeing with some of the things that are said about Israel. Even if that's not what they want, the more that you hear that Israel is a colonizer, is committing genocide, whatever other claim or charge you want to make, after a while, people might almost unconsciously adopt that and say, yes, but, as opposed to that's absurd. Have you seen that at all? Has there been some sort of adopting of some of the anti-Semites or anti-Israel advocates' claims themselves by Jews? Yeah, so what you're saying, uh, observers of American Jews have argued this for a while. One way of naming it is like this distancing hypothesis. The younger American Jews are internalizing the critique and distancing themselves from Israel. And that's 100% happening. Uh, You know, we shouldn't minimize that. 
part of what I've been working on, and I have like an article in, in a draft form, is actually pushing back against that um, as the sole narrative. I work every day with what I would call liberal, and I mean liberal loosely, they probably voted blue in the last election, with liberal young Gen Z and young millennial American Jews. And the naked anti-Semitism that they saw the day, like October 8th, you know what I mean? Like before a ground invasion, before anything, that has been for many people like an awakening moment of actually questioning a lot of the vilification of Israel. So many of them is like, they don't trust the UN anymore. They don't trust their professors anymore. It's been almost like, I don't know if you know the expression, if you follow the culture wars, like being red-pilled, they use that expression with like those who are like, wake up, they used to be blue. I'm not saying they're red now, but there's been almost like a blue pill. I don't know what to call it, going on in which a lot of young liberal Jews are like, whoa, there's like so much anti-Semitism. And it's making them um, go back to a lot of the accusations against Israel. So I'm not saying that what you're saying isn't a real concern. Of course, it's a real concern. But in terms of, of what we should do positively as leaders and educators, what I'm focused on personally is I actually want to support all those young people who, are, who have awakened up more. They're masses of Jewish people who are like really working overtime right now in a way they weren't before. Um, they might not use the word Zionism because they don't think so much in terms of ideology. But for them, it's like half the Jewish people are in Israel and Hamas wants to murder Jews. And that's something pretty obvious. So so I think we can't, I think, I think we can make things worse when we lose sight of that. Okay. I want to move on to the downtown Minyan, the place where you are, Roche Kehila. First, can you talk about the origins of the downtown Minyan? Why was it founded? And perhaps I can ask what problem, if any, were you trying to solve? Yeah, I wish we were that intentional or maybe, maybe it's good we weren't. Um, it was about seven years ago. Um, I was somewhat newlywed. Um, my husband had just finished his own tenure as the rabbi of a Sephardic shul in Manhattan, and he was switching gears to become a day school administrator. Um, and me and him and some other people were approached by some community members in lower Manhattan where we were living. And they basically said, well, what if we were to support you to start a community that would reflect your values? And that, to me, on a personal level, was a bit of a game changer. Uh, I think that I tended to always think about being within an institution and how I felt about it. Uh, the way that I say it almost like uh, jokingly, it's like I used to be, you know, we're, we're all really good about complaining about the things we don't like in institutions. But how often do we have people who come to us and we're like, wait a second, what if you could actually create something that, that aligns with, you know, what you really want and what you're dreaming of? So that was really the question that came. It wasn't so much about uh, identifying problems, even though I could do that. It was really about like, okay, like just just create something. So we we started this community not knowing if it was going to last a week or a month. That's you know it was very much like okay, let's let's try this out. And the intention there was to as much as possible um, reflect um, the values that we had. For me, these values are to have fealty to halacha, being Shomer Torah Mitzvot, to have fealty to Jewish tradition and the Jewish covenant, and to do so in a way that allows people to feel seen, to feel welcomed, and to feel included. I can go in any direction. I can also talk about like the, the, the intellectual underpinnings. Um, I often talk about our community. Uh, if I, if I want to explain like the aspirational vision of the downtown minion, it's like if you were to put the the welcoming warmth of Chabad, or what I would call like my, my grandmother's Sephardic home, um, with the intellectual vision of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and the way that he would think about the covenant, the Jewish people, a Jewish community engaged with the world. 
so those were some of like the the elements that we were playing with and we started seven years ago thank god we have grown a lot uh, we serve mostly young professionals so uh, young jews like in their 20s and 30s um we get about like 120 young people on a Shabbat morning uh, who come and who spend hours with us. And what I am most proud of is that we are known in our neighborhood as like a warm place. And we are known not just like as another Jewish institution that like you should hop in, but as a real community uh, that people really care for and believe in. Where is your community exactly? Is it near Washington Square Park? Uh, we Right now we rent space near Union Square. So if you're in Lower Manhattan again, let me know. We'd love to have you. Uh, or anybody who's listening, just let me know. Um, uh, near Union Square. We, we had to shift a little bit because we kept outgrowing our spaces, uh, thank God. Uh, it's not easy, by the way, to find a space that can fit 120 people in Lower Manhattan. Uh, not easy at all. Um, I get that. Yeah. So That's a very interesting way of putting it, this combination of sort of the welcoming nature of your grandmother's home or Chabad combined with the intellectual underpinnings of a Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Yeah. And having that welcoming attitude alongside fealty to halacha. So let me ask you, Michal, in practice, if I were to ask a lot of shuls, are you welcoming? They say, of course we're welcoming. What makes the downtown minion different? Or more specifically, how would you implement this in such a way that it's not just a platitude or a line on a brochure, but actually means something in practice? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that for me, part of the way that this manifests is that we... Um, we keep Orthodox halacha, and I am happy to also go into details as to what that looks like with me as a leader. Um, and at the same time, the, the result of our community, so just look at an implication, is that our members and our regulars come from all different places. We have people who grew up unaffiliated, reform, conservative, Orthodox, uh, and we have people who right now continue to identify in many different ways. So what I think we accomplished, which used to be more common, I think, in the American Jewish community, is that we were able to create a community in which um, Orthodox halacha is being followed, but not everybody or the majority of those who come are Orthodox. So that's a little bit about what I mean by, by welcoming, that you can insist on community that transcends some of the denominational boundaries that have become so um, important in, in much of American Jewish life. Um, but, but I think, yeah, I think a lot of it is like, there's a lot of small things that shows can do. It's like you put somebody by the door and you welcome people coming in. Um, you, you make sure that you translate things or you explain things. You think very intentionally about how to make people feel welcomed and having their voice heard. Uh, I'm not saying that all the shows don't do that. A lot of them do and they do it excellently. Uh, but to me, that's, that's probably what I'm most proud of that we are creating. In that case, what do you mean by Orthodox Halakha? You said you could talk a little bit more about that. And I'll combine that question with the question of your role as Rosh Kehillah, because you also have a rabbi, correct? Uh, we have Rabbi Yehuda Sarna is a community scholar uh, in our community. I'm the, the, the spiritual leader, the Rosh Kehillah, uh, and he's part of the team that we work together. He's one of the co-leaders that we co-founded the community with. In that case, what does Rosh Kehillah mean? What is your role? And how does that work in terms of the non-egalitarian nature of an Orthodox minyan? Yeah, so I would say that our the, the, right now, if you go to a shul, the biggest question that you ask to see if it's Orthodox is, is there a mechitza? Is there a partition between genders? So in that sense, we have a mechitza. We have a partition between genders. Um, the uh, you know we, we, we require a minyan of 10 men, a quorum of 10 men uh, for services, uh, for things to happen. Um, we follow Orthodox halakha uh, in that way. Um, um, that's, I think, what characterizes us as being 
an Orthodox community, I would also, uh, following Orthodox practice, I actually, you know what, Scott, I'm careful. I don't say we're an Orthodox community because I actually want to insist that I want a lot of people to come to us. Um, and so I say, you know, we follow Orthodox Alakha, but we are, a, if I'm aspirational, we are a covenantal traditional community. And I don't want to actually just make us narrow um, and, and imply that only Orthodox people should come and feel comfortable. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to ask you about that in a few minutes, yeah. but keep going, please. I would say that we combine a fealty to Alakha and also just like I, I feel very strongly about tradition, you know, treating Torah with reverence uh, and, and, and as being given to us by God and all of those things that I think are really important in a traditional space, we combine this, or I combine this, with what um, I've often called an egalitarian aesthetic, which is that I want people who walk in to feel that we are doing as much as we can in symbolic and aesthetic ways to make every person who walks in feel welcome. And to me, part of what it means to feel welcome is to feel needed. I think, I'll say something for your listeners, I think most Orthodox men underestimate the effect that it has to feel needed. When you walk into a shul and you know that you are one of the 10 men who are needed for a minyan, that does something about how much you feel valued by a space. So part of what, what we have been wondering, and we're not the only ones, is how do we have, yeah, we have a minyan, but we also have a community where Keila. And in this community, we want people to walk in. We want them to feel welcomed. And I would dare, dare say for me, and I have a philosophical debate with some members whether being needed is the highest form of, of being included. But for me, I want people to feel needed when they walk in, um, which means there's like a whole host of different things that we do um, to shape this in a way that I think um, is different than like a typical from Orthodox shul in New York. In that case, what sorts of things would you allow women to do in the shul whether or not it's similar to other Orthodox congregations, in what way will they feel needed? In other words, if you're keeping halacha, that would mean, at least according to the way that Orthodox people generally understand halacha, that means that women are, by necessity, limited in what they can do during tefillah in a communal sense, in terms of leading tefillah. So in what ways do you make women feel needed, and frankly, everybody feel needed, without at the same time blurring the lines of halacha? That's a great question. I would say, let me take a step back and talk more broadly about what I think about the role of women in Orthodox communities. Uh, I think to me, there is a real distinction between almost like the narrow demands of halakha uh, in terms of limitations placed upon women, uh, which I submit myself to that, you know, to that system. And then a lot of meta halachic principles that end up limiting women's roles. What do I mean by meta halachic principles? Tradition, mesorah, the way things have always been done. Atniut is a huge meta-alachic principle in which we can collapse a lot of things that women shouldn't do because we just call them all not senua. Um, and, and there's like another meta-alachic principle, I would say, of not wanting to assimilate and as such wanting to push back against anything that might look like innovation. But I think uh, for me, kind of like what I'm trying to do is say there is a way of doing things in which we have fealty to alacha. So the things that I described before in terms of having a mechitza, in terms of requiring a minyan of men, uh, th those are things that have to do with fealty to halakha. What the mechitza looks like, where the mechitza is placed in the room, who is sharing the Torah, how the room is being phrased, additional prayers that could be said by women, right? Who, like, there's a, a whole host of things that are not limited, in my opinion, okay? There's, of course, we can have a debate around this. They are not limited by a strict reading of halakha that we could make women and everybody feel more included in a community. 
So to me, that's a little bit of like the fine line that that I want to walk and that I want to insist that we can walk in. Um, and, and there's something to me here critical about both. It's almost like I want to push back against binary. These are not like it's not a zero sum game that you have like, you know, the halachic needs of what I'm calling meta halachic limitations upon women, or you have, you know, totalizing egalitarianism. I think there can be a way to to try to to with integrity and with honesty and um and not alone doing it as a community to try to to have uh, something in the middle. Okay, then can you give some examples of what women might do in the downtown Minion, which might be surprising to somebody who comes from a more typical Orthodox synagogue? Yeah, well, the first thing I will say, just I do want to just emphasize the Mechitza. Um, for me, the place that I feel most welcome in terms of the Mechitza is that if I were to walk into a shul space before there's people there, that I won't be able to tell which is the men's section and which is the women's section. To me, that's one ideal way of kind of giving an example about what I mean by a more inclusive aesthetic, because there is nothing halachically wrong with having a mechitza that goes down the middle of the room and with actually just making everybody who walks in feel like they're, they have uh, equal sight and hearing access <laughs> uh, to the tefillah. So that's just like, well, I just want to emphasize that example. And that is something that is halachically uncomplicated. You can have a mechitza that is, you know, the wall of China. But whatever it is, but you can place it in a way that makes men and women feel like they're walking in and like the community is thinking of them in a similar way in the way that they're sitting. So that's just like one, one example. So our mechitza is like that. It's not the wall of China, it's lower, but, but it's one that like you can't tell who's sitting where if the room is empty. Um, other things that we do, so we have uh, prayers for the community, uh, prayers for the IDF, prayer for the United States and its government. Those are read by women. Um, we have me as the Rosh Keila. Um, I introduce the Eliot, the, 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 you know, the Torah portion. I introduce them. So I speak in the middle. Like I don't, some Orthodox schools, many of them, by the way, let's just name it. Most, most Orthodox schools don't allow women to speak. Um, and many of them who do have a lot of like rules as to when they speak. Um, for us, when I share Torah, I share Torah at different points in the, in the tefillah. Um, and, and, and I speak about it also. This, this might be things that people don't realize. Very often, lovely, well-intentioned Orthodox rabbis will speak in a way that assumes their audience is male. I don't speak like that, okay? The examples that I bring, the, the way that I speak. So it, it's a lot of like some small things and some more intentional things that are meant to insist we can have an elastic community, we can have fealty to Torah and mitzvot, all of those things, and we want to insist to do it in a way that we believe can continue to do this while making people who walk in feel more needed, feel more included, feel more seen. That sounds very good to me. Let me ask you again, Michal. You have to come visit your... us. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of your role as Rosh Kihila, what does that specifically include? What sorts of things do you do? I think my role as Rosh Kihila reflects a little bit also the type of community that we have. So the type of community that we have, uh, I'll just be honest, I don't get that many Alachi questions. Um, we serve, uh, we, we get some, but like nothing like extremely complicated. But if there were halachic questions, would they go to you? Are you the person? Are you the address? Uh, yes, I would address them. And if they are something that I believe is above my pay grade, I would consult with Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. Um, and we would actually like, we, we have a beautiful collaboration. We work collegially, co collegially uh, well together in a way that it's been seven years and we've had different questions and it's never been, it's always been like a mutual conversation. Um, in which we, we, you know, we review things, we might discuss things together, and, and we'll, if, if there's a question, we'll arrive at a conclusion you know, in a process that is collaborative. 
But by Rosh Kehila, I think it means that that when people think about who's the spiritual leader of the community, they speak, they think about me. Uh, when people think about who's a Torah teacher, um, who's helping talk about current events, what it means to be a Jew in the world, what does the Torah tell us, the, the parasha about, you know, what we're doing right now, they think about me. Um, I am becoming more involved in um, celebrating like life cycle events. Um, so I will participate in a chupa by sharing words about the couple, by introducing different brachot, things like that. Um, and just like different things like that. And a lot of it is also like pastoral and like building community and hosting people and helping, you know, nourish leadership and making people feel again, like for me, what's the covenant? What's the brit that we have to aim for? I think the covenant means that we are all needed for the flourishing of the Jewish people. And that's a little bit about what education to me feels like to make people feel needed, wanted, and responsible for the flourishing of our communities. So that's a lot of, of what I see as, as, my, as my role uh, in doing this. Needed, wanted, and responsible for the flourishing of the Jewish community. That is a pretty important role, so I definitely it, can respect it's that. It's aspirational. It's very aspirational. You know, I can get it. I respect that aspiration. Michal, let me ask you, in terms of your vision of the wider Orthodox community, and I know that that's a term that we have to address in different contexts, but in terms of the wider halachic community, do you see what you're doing at the downtown Minyan trying to make this new kind of, as you call it, egalitarian aesthetic, do you see that as something which is good for you and other Orthodox communities should keep doing what they do, even if it doesn't include that? Or do you think that what you're doing is something that should spread throughout orthodoxy. In other words, do you think that, again, speaking aspirationally, the goal is to change certain elements of the way our communities are run or to add new elements while keeping some of the old shuls the way they are? If people are enjoying it, shalom al Yisrael, enjoy it, and that's no problem. That's a complicated question. I don't like assuming or presuming that everyone should do what I think is right. Um, I also, I'll just say this here. I mentioned my grandmother before. I'll mention my parents. Uh, whom I love. My grandmother passed away. I loved her very much. And they, especially when it comes to gender, they practice and practice in a way that is very different. And I respect and honor uh, the way that different Jews are building Jewish communities, which are not always the same. And I think diversity is important. Uh, so I, I, would, I would feel comfortable saying that I do hope for the sake of the covenant and the Jewish people that all Jewish communities ask themselves seriously, what are we doing in our own way that make everybody, whatever their gender is, feel more responsible, more included in our communities. And I don't presume that it's gonna look the same everywhere, but also, and I'll speak a bit frankly here, I spoke before about meta-alachic uh, categories and alachic limitations. I'll also say in many places, there's also what I see as like plain misogyny, um, you know, in terms of like wanting to continue to limit women's roles, still having power in certain positions, so I, I do think that I would hope that our communities have some cheshbon nefesh, some introspection about this. Um, and there's a lot of different tools and a lot of different ways. And I would be the last, as you know what, I'll say this differently, Scott. I have been, I spoke right now about my experiences vis-a-vis Orthodox communities. I've also been accused by liberal and progressive friends and colleagues of, you know, of, of upholding a patriarchal system because of my choices. And I have fought back against that in many ways. Um, and I really believe in agency and in choice. And I don't believe that liberal Western egalitarianism is the end all and be all of all of our questions. So because of that, I, don't, I wouldn't jump and say everyone should do everything the same. And at the same time, I do want a Jewish community in which my son and my daughter, I have two children, in which 
they both feel needed, welcomed, and in which their their talents and their abilities that Hashem gave them are given space for them to to love uh, being leaders in the Jewish community. And I definitely agree with you that as much as we are loath to acknowledge this, simple misogyny is often a reality that takes place. And obviously, it's generally unconscious. It's not people saying, I don't like women, therefore I'm going to act this way. It's more simply a lack of awareness. One thing that I've noticed, my own daughters are shulgoers. And when they come to Mincha, for example, or Ma'ariv on a Shabbos afternoon, the need to kick men out of the Ezrat Nashim It's just a small but telling example of the way that men too often just don't think about how women may be experiencing Judaism if they're doing certain things that they're doing. And I think it is misogyny. And if we downplay that, we're going to lose the opportunity to change things that need to be changed. Yeah, I would add, to me, it's very clear when I speak with people about the Aguna problem and the way that people talk about get refusal, that to me is when a lot of the ugly misogyny kind of is revealed. Uh, and I would also say, like, if if I speak in purely like Machiavellian kind of like terms, when certain groups have power, just in general, uh, sharing power is always a battle, right? <laughs> because who wants to kind of like give up power and like democratize it more? So I think that that leaves, to me, that more cynical point of view lives alongside a fealty to Allah and a fealty to wanting to be like a link in the chain of the covenant. And to wanting to honor, you know, my, my, my parents, my grandparents and where I come from. But saying that doesn't take away the more kind of like cynical view about systems and how systems change. And, and I think we can have we can have both and we can be honest with ourselves as to why certain change doesn't happen. Do you think, Michal, in that same vein, that sometimes there are areas of halakha where we should be changing things? And you spoke before about meta-halachic values. There is halakha, there is non-halachic values that maybe we'll call meta-halachic values that have come into our system. But then there are things that are sort of in the middle. I'll give an example. The Gemara Masech Megillah says that women are allowed to get aliyot to the Torah, but they shouldn't because of the honor of the congregation. And the question is, what does that mean? So post-scheme for the past 2,000 years have basically said women cannot get aliyot, and the vast majority of Orthodox congregations have continued with that. One could argue, though, that translation they use of honoring the congregation is not a halachic value so much as it is a societal value that may not apply anymore. Do you think that we should be making changes in those areas as well? And I ask this knowing that, as far as I know, you're not claiming to be a postake. At the same time, it's a question which a Rosh Kihila might have to deal with. From your personal stance as a Rosh Kihila, is that an area that you think we should push on or somewhere that we should actually say, Ad Khan, don't go further, let's try certain things but not other things? Yeah. I'll say two things. First of all, as like an anecdotal point uh, in terms of thinking about Kvod Tzibur, uh, in a community such as mine, we often have women who grew up egalitarian, who like lane beautifully and do everything beautifully. And I just want listeners to think about the experience of sitting down and seeing men go up who don't read as well. And like the whole notion of Kvod Tzibur can just be a, a subjective experience that can feel bizarre at times. Um, but, but, but in terms of your question, so I would say as follows. Uh, I think that halacha and law in general, like they're not pure like theoretical matters. They have to do with society, a lot of it, right? So I'm a legal formalist. I believe that the law requires a certain process. And a lot of the process has to do with reception of the law. And how is, like Tamar Ross, for example, she's the one who writes about this from like a Jewish feminist perspective. You can also look at plenty of jurists to write about this from like an American perspective. But the law is never only about making legal arguments. If that is the case, we can make a ton of legal arguments with many things. A lot of the law has to do with reception. 
And for me, the question like the one you just brought, or, or I've also read a lot of Piskei Lacha from the rabbis at Mechon Hadar, who I think they're an egalitarian um, alachic community with rabbis with immense amount of knowledge. Um, and while some of the arguments that they make, I think make sense within the alachic discourse, you know, what is the reception to it? How many communities of self-identified Shomre Torah mitzvot people end up taking that on? So to me, that is the reason, like that, that is kind of like the cheshbon or the calculus that has to be made as to whether something is accepted. Right now, women receiving aliyot the way that you just described it, maybe it could work within the, 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 the legality of it, the way that you were just describing it. But in terms of reception, we don't currently have communal reception of large publics of Shomre Torah and Mitzvot people who have accepted that as part of the Alachic normative world they live in that has continuity with the past. So to me, what this means is that I continue to hold myself accountable to Alacha in a way that takes reception and society seriously. Sorry, I hope that wasn't like too jargony or too whatever. Um, and, and at the same time, I also think we should continue to educate and build communities. And I don't know if what today is what's going to be in 30 years or in 40 years. And in that way, I think Alacha has a certain like social, I'm a sociologist by training. So that's my PhD in sociology. Um, the Alacha has a certain uh, sociological dimension to it, which we have to take seriously. That's so interesting. That discussion right now is making me think about Rabbi Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik's very mm -hmm. well-known article, Rupture and Reconstruction. And I, frankly, Michal, never thought of it in this way before, but he's talking about in that article what might be called the Haredi world and their insistence on a certain textual formalism. What does it say in the text itself? And he was arguing that Orthodoxy traditionally was much more based on misorai and on tradition and on the way things were done alongside and living in conjunction with the text. What's interesting is that you're saying is that also on the left, in a place like Hadar, Machon Hadar, they may also be into textual formalism. This is how we can maneuver halakhically using the text. We can allow something that wasn't allowed previously based on the text, even if, practically speaking, it's not being done. And I never really thought of it in those terms, that there might be an alliance of sorts, an unwitting alliance between those on the right who are textual formalists and saying, even if people have been acting a certain way for many years, we have to change things based on the text to be more strict, whereas people on the left, perhaps, will say the same thing just to be more lenient. Even if people have been disallowing something for a long time, we can allow it now because of what it says in the text. The centrist Orthodox community in that way may find itself in the middle, trying to balance text and tradition. Of course, admittedly, there are those in that centrist Orthodox world who fit into both camps. Some people say, well, the text says that, so we have to be more strict. And some people say, hey, the text allows something so we can be more lenient. But I mean, perhaps in a broad sense, what Rabbi Dr. Soloveitchik calls the old style Orthodoxy would fit somewhere in the middle. Yes, 100%. I have thought a lot about this article also because of my research on Sephardic Jews, uh, who I think have continued to reflect a, a more like a higher version of mimetic tradition. I would say that I have rejected, I have heard arguments that from feminists who either use text or mimetic tradition as like what will liberate women. And I'm like, in my experience, you can use either uh, to kind of like arrive at a different, you know, narrow interpretations of women's roles in the world. I have seen both text and mimetic tradition used in, in similar ways. Um, so I'm a little bit agnostic as to like, you know, choosing one. <laughs> Um, for this, but but I do think it's important to acknowledge a distinction. And a lot in, in Orthodox communities, so much of it is about when it comes to gender, in my opinion, um, women's roles, a lot of it is just mimetic. It's like women haven't done this. It's not a Masorah. What if then the following happens? Um, well, I think the text actually allows for, for things um, in, in a greater way. 
Okay, you really made me think, Michal. I appreciate that. You just mentioned your studies of Sephardic Jewry. So I want to ask you a little bit about that because you have done significant work studying Syrian and Sephardic Jewry. And those communities very often, it's many communities, but they don't often fit into the same denominational boxes that American Jews are used to establishing or perhaps Ashkenazi Jews in general are used to establishing, whether it's Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, or any other denominations. We already mentioned the problem with the word Orthodox that you think it might be limiting. So I wanted to ask you, in what ways do you think that non-Ashkenazi communities fit into the Orthodox mold and in what ways do they not? Yeah, and this is, by the way, Scott, this is why I feel very comfortable saying that I'm I'm not Orthodox, even though I affiliate with Orthodoxy, because I'm Sephardic. And in many ways, my people didn't go through the same historical trajectories and birth of denominations. I feel more comfortable with the word traditional or alachic or or things like that. Um, But listen, every community is different. I spent many years studying the community where my husband actually grew up, which is the Syrian Sephardic community in Brooklyn. It's a robust, big, uh, strong community that is in many ways very different than our Ashkenazi Orthodox models and in other ways has uh, has adopted or actually done things similar to Ashkenazi Orthodox communities. I I would say the following. I would say that right now, if you ask people in this community and in many other Sephardic communities what they are and you give them like a survey, if they have to choose, they will most often choose Orthodoxy because they feel much more comfortable with Orthodoxy than with conservative or reform, okay? At the same time, when you look at the way that the community runs and and the way that it's shaped, there's going to be some distinctions. Uh, so some of it, I think, and, and but some of it is eroding. So I don't want to overstate the case. I think there's like some assimilation happening in Orthodoxy actually. Um, but 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 some of the of the exceptions, I think that this Sephardi communities continue to have in a lot of levels of diversity in terms of halachic practice in the way that you don't have. Right now, if you go to like an Orthodox from community in the five towns and Tinek in Brooklyn, a geographically based community, you tend to have certain homogeneity in terms of how people practice halachically. In this Sephardic communities, because the like the central organizing principle is like ethnic, it's like where you came from, you know, you actually have people who practice really differently and who continue to be part of the same community. Um, so that's like one example in the way that you have a traditional community that doesn't uh, reflect the same social dynamics as, let's say, Ashkenazi orthodoxy. So in that case, then, Michal, if we talk about our earlier statements about the downtown minion not being an orthodox shul in the way that perhaps people classically use that, it's a Torah shul, it's a halachic shul, but there may be an avoidance of the term orthodox. So overall, do you think that denominations are something which we should move away from? Is that something which you think would be a positive movement for American Jewry if we stopped with this denominational identification? if we move towards perhaps the Sephardic model? Yeah, I, I do use Orthodox, by the way. We follow Orthodox practice, but we are sure for everybody. Okay. So I do think that Masortiut, and I, I read very carefully a lot of the um, public intellectual work of Masorti philosophers and leaders in Israel who mostly write in Hebrew, so they are kind of like inaccessible to uh, English-speaking public. Uh, but I think there's something there in Masortiut, and you see the rise of Masortiut in Israel, in which you have people who kind of like refuse the religious secular binary, but who have like a strong connection, a strong normative connection to the Jewish people, to Jewish tradition. And that, to to make it clear, it's not only that it's less textual, it's less ideological. It's much less about being able to give like principles, you know what I mean? And to explain things in an ideological way, which I actually think is one of the hallmarks of modern orthodoxy is how much it works with ideological expression, right? 
And meanwhile, like Sephardic and also pre-denominational Ashkenazi Jewish life was traditional in a way that you did not have to create ideological explanations as to who you are. So to me, I, again, I don't mean to sound, to go too much in the jargon direction, but to me, there is something here about saying we can, we can have like a normative version of Judaism that is attractive, that brings in many Jews from different places, that makes them feel this connection to Am Israel, to Torah Israel, in a way that is natural, organic, almost as being part of like a family, an extended family in which I cannot give you an ideological principle statement as to why that is. It's what Chabad does also, by the way. This past Shabbat, I was actually reading an article by Rav Shagar, I did not finish it, where he talks about the influence of ideology yeah. on many of our communities in ways that it wasn't necessarily true in the past. And in fact, as you describe it, pre-denominational Judaism didn't require ideology, in part because that's how we define the differences. In other words, if somebody is fully halachic but espouses certain beliefs, a lot of people would say, well, he can't be orthodox because orthodox is defined by at least verbally assenting to certain beliefs, even if that person isn't halachic. I'm not saying this is something which is necessarily conscious, but very often that's how we establish it. Do you think that it's right for Judaism to move into a post-ideology future, that we don't really use ideology as much as we do? I don't mean we shouldn't have beliefs, but ideology implies a certain rounded type of way of thinking which can hold people in. Yeah, and I've read Rav Shagar on, on ideology on this. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say to do away fully with ideology because ideology I think is needed. I would say I've been thinking a little bit about Rabbi Sachs, who often spoke about having like two languages. Um, so I, I do think there is a space for ideological language, for the language that you use when you have to give a principled explanation and sometimes a defense of who you are. But I think in too many spaces, we've forgotten the other language, which is, again, I mentioned Chabad or, you know, like when you walk into a space and you just feel and you have like a normative experience of belonging. Um, and I think we've, in some spaces, it's almost like we've only had one language. So I wouldn't say, especially as someone who loves intellectual ideological discussions, I wouldn't say to do away with ideology because there's ideology is still alive in the world, which means it's needed to, to like, you know, reckon with different questions. But the problem is when ideology is the lingua franca and like the only language that we kind of use and promote. So I think we have to actually like recover this ability of having multiple languages and insisting that we can have uh, spaces that are just, they, they feel good. They feel like you have belonging. They feel like you're part of this tradition and you don't need to measure the success of that by how much you can give an ideological uh, description of it. You're a sociologist, so you may say that I'm completely off base over here, but my feeling about ideology is very often that it tends to grow in a way which is not healthy, meaning as opposed to having some basic ideas that we can all espouse together that hold us together, that often, at least in my experience, sociologically speaking, turns into something that's bigger, and suddenly it starts to include certain political beliefs, and then it starts to include all sorts of other ideas which were beyond that original ideology. Let's say I'm using this as an example, that the ideology of orthodoxy, for lack of a better example, is the 13 Akari Amuna, the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam. But then it also might turn, for example, in Israel, in a Dati Lumi community, a national religious community, it might include the parties that you vote for, and it might also include the type of shul that you're willing to go, how high the mechitza is. That's all part of the ideology. So ideology can often be used not only as a way of belonging, but of limiting who isn't part of it. And if we talk about feeling needed, if we talk about wanting to bring people in rather than to exclude people, ideology can sometimes serve, it seems to me, as a way of building walls rather than taking them down. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also just like add like maybe like a less uh, sophisticated way of thinking about it. I think that people 
belong to groups, not because of ideology. They belong to, if they have to choose, they belong to groups because of how it makes them feel about themselves. Uh, so, so every community, let's think about like pre-modern communities, you always had the scholars and the rabbis and the spiritual leaders who are needed because they're going to deal with ideology and there's going to be questions that are going to come up. But that's not like the first entryway. And that's, there's not such an emphasis for it in terms of like everyday living and, and belonging. So it's not, to me, it's not so much that we have to get rid of it. It's that we have to de-emphasize it as like a central organizing principle. Um, and and we, can, we can actually allow ourselves, like, again, think you live in Israel. Think about like Masorati Jews, which are not just Mizrahim, you have others. And there's something there about like a thick sense of, again, I'll say belonging, um, which is not necessarily captured by ideology. Okay, Michal, I want to ask you about beliefs in a different sense. I understand that you often find yourself working in very progressive liberal Jewish spaces. And I want to know what it's like for you as a traditional woman who likely doesn't identify with much of what they are professing. What is that like? How has that experience been to be in a place where your beliefs are so fundamentally opposed and diametrically opposed at times from the people with whom you work or with whom you associate? Yeah, that's a huge question. <laughs> uh, very big question. Um, I would say the following. I would say that about 10 or 15, 10 years ago, which is when I began to encounter what I would call liberal pluralistic Jewish life, um, I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it because I felt that I could have a seat at the table as a traditional woman, that my views could be respected, and that at the same time, I could engage with people who think differently, which I enjoy doing very much. And I could have a commitment to Klal Israel that goes beyond my community. Um, I would say, and I don't mean to generalize too much, but I will make a general statement, that that feeling has eroded in many ways because of what I see as like in many spaces, academia and otherwise, as like a rise of illiberalism. Um, and, and really like lack of respect and dignity for any kind of like traditional Jewish views. Um, so increasingly in different spaces, I have struggled. Um, I have struggled with that. Um, and I, have, uh, I continue to really still love what I think of as like classical liberal values, which I think in, in aspirationally can actually include and honor uh, traditional voices. Uh, but right now, let me speak about academia, for example, right now, when you have traditional non-Jewish voices, let's say like traditional Muslim voices, uh, there's a lot of academic theory that gives those voices dignity and gives them respect. Um, those tools are used in an almost, I'm gonna generalize a lot, in an almost opposite way when it comes to the Jewish experience. Uh, to want to kind of like, um, like bring down, de-essentialize, like cut down, break down any sort of like traditional memory um, that Jews have. So, so as a as, as a Jew, as a traditional Jew, as someone who has deep um, pride, and by pride I mean that I want to walk with dignity in terms of the the, the heritage that I've inherited and that I want to give to my children. Uh, many of these spaces just feel um, increasingly unwelcoming, uh, and in this way, I, I ally myself with all kinds of Americans who are nervous about the rise of illiberalism at the extreme poles of our American political system. I want to ask you, Michal, in the time that we have left about what we might call orthodox institutions per se, because you are the head of an institution that follows orthodox halacha, whatever phrase you want to use to define it. And I sometimes feel myself, and you can disagree with me, that too many orthodox institutions are mired in a natural inability to move forward in a significant way. 
In other words, when you talk about the metahalachic values, I think very often for reasons that make a lot of sense, I'm not criticizing them per se, but they can't move. These are giant ships that moving the wheel, it's going to take a long time before they move even a few degrees to one direction or the other. And I wanted to ask you, if you find that there are problems that are endemic to Orthodox or even Jewish institutions that we really should be working on. Yeah, I mean, we, we, there's, there's a lot we can both probably give opinions on. I, I will say the following, going back to the beginning of our conversation. I think post-October 7th, okay, I, I feel, I think many of us feel like we are in an existential moment for the Jewish people. And to me, the big question that every single Jew needs to ask is how do we help the Jewish people? And that question reveals some limitations of Orthodox institutions. Some of those limitations, I think that sometimes some of them can be very parochial, which means that they work really hard on building amazing institutions, but they do not have the tools or skills to fight the battles that we need to fight against like the outside world, whether it is in terms of like narrative or engagement uh, or things like that. I think we can talk about like, I mean, what's happening in terms of like an ideology around Talmud Torah in Israel, in certain Haredi communities, uh, in which, um, you know, you basically have created a way of saying that a segment of Jews shouldn't go to the army, well, some should, and I'm saying this with a lot of humility living in the U.S., um, but, but I'm saying, I think post-October 7th, just thinking, my, my question would be, what are the existential needs of the Jewish people? And where are the places that Orthodox communities cannot meet them? And to me, that's the beginning of where we have to fix things. Are, are young American Jews who are struggling on college campus and other places, do they have what to find in Orthodox spaces that will help them right now? Do, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like I think like this is a moment of so much trauma and rupture um, and, and breakdown that it should demand that we ask ourselves if we have set up our institutions to fight these battles. And many of us haven't. It's, it's um, and, you know, I'm not, and I don't mean just to cast blame. I, I, I would speak also personally. Um, I think it's a moment that we have to do real reflection on this. Okay, then let me ask you, Michal, what are some of those existential needs of the Jewish community? Going back to the beginning of our conversation, that post-October 7th, looking at it as a type of opportunity, as a time when things have broken down and we have the chance to really change things. What are some of those things that require change that institutions or individuals can do? Great. Let's give some examples. And I'm going to speak to like Orthodox, an Orthodox audience. One of them is becoming more uh, involved as citizens in this country like having more of like a civic mindset because what we have to do right now is not You're only referring to, to American Jews right now, right? Yes. Uh, sorry, American Jews. I thought you asked me about American Jews. Um, yes, for example. Yes. Like we we are at a, at a moment of crisis in which America could go in different directions. Just look at the polls of like young Americans and the way they think about Jews and about Israel. And it is not enough for us to build our own good communities. We need to have like real deep engagement with other people, I don't mean here the ideologues. I mean, there's like a huge swath of Americans that need to be given like the case as to why they should fight anti-Semitism and why they should support Israel or at least not vilify it. And you cannot do that if you spend most of your time only engaging with other Orthodox Jews. And you cannot do that if the only time you engage in politics is to try to get money for like the tuition crisis. So like, I, I really think that we need a revolution in terms of saying, if we are here, part of our war front is to make sure that we are engaged citizens who can help move citizenship forward. So that's like one example about what it would mean to like take this seriously. The other example that I gave, it's like, we need to do more work with non-Orthodox Jews. We need to, like we, we, we need, there, there's, there's so many crises, it's almost hard to describe just one, but there's so many Jews right now in America who are experiencing anti-Semitism 
for the first time in like a, in a serious way, I argue to you before there's like a lot of young Jews who actually are like beginning to like see things differently. And a lot of liberal spaces are not set up to serve Zionist young Jews right now. And a lot of these, I would call them like normally liberal Zionist young Jews, don't feel super comfortable walking into an Orthodox space. So we need to have an engagement strategy that is not Kirov, okay? That is not just about making them Orthodox. That's not going to work. We need to have like a Klal Israel, like, you know, like, like this kind of view that takes seriously like these existential challenges for the Jewish people and to respond to them that in a way that says like, you know, like the, 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 the need of the hour. I, I don't know if I can be more specific than that. I think it's a mindset. And I think there's so many other examples that people could bring. But part of it is just saying like, what are the existential battles and are we set up and doing what we can to meet them? Then Michal, let me ask you as a final question now. Yeah. Taking all those existential battles that we can wage, let's assume that we wage them properly. And let's say that Dr. Michal Bitton can declare what Judaism will look like after we have successfully waged these battles. What would be your vision for the future of Judaism in the United States? What would it look like? And how would that be manifest for people listening right now? What would be Judaism of the future in your vision? Yeah, so you like ending with like an easy, you know, pack question. Yeah, I like to save the simplest one for last. So I'm assuming there's like no anti-Semitism and we figured out all those bad things. I don't know about anti-Semitism. Let's talk about ourselves. In other words, assuming the world outside remains whatever it is, what would the Jewish community be, though, if we could yeah. be our, if we could be the best version of ourselves? Yeah, I, but, but, but I, just to say that I think anti-Semitism is one of the biggest factors that will shape who we are, just historically. Um, listen, I think, I think we need the kind of confident, traditional Jewish life that is engaging beyond itself. And that has like a big, broad umbrella. There is like a breakdown of the denominational life. In America, you see more people like opting out of organized religion, opting out of like organized denominations. And I think there is a space here for like a resurgence of like this traditional um, Jewish life that is confident, that is tolerant in terms of the diversity it can encompass, but without feeling like you have to choose like an extreme side. So for me, the, the, the ideal future is one that is staying away from extreme polarities that doesn't believe moderation has to then give up confidence or passion. You can have passion and confidence and still be moderate. And that is not like we're not supposed to be like just serving Orthodox Jews. We are part of the Jewish people, you know, and we are part of the world. And that is what I think confidence, covenantal service and Avodat Hashem aspirationally look like. Okay, well, Dr. Michal Bitton, your confidence gives me confidence, and I appreciate uh, the work that you're doing. And as I mentioned to you before we went on the air, when we were talking about setting up this interview, what really mattered to me today, above all, was hearing your voice on the podcast, because I know that in my vision of the Jewish future, we need to have new leadership. We need to have new voices that until now have not been prominent. And thank God your voice has become more prominent. And I think we need you and more people like you to help set the agenda for the future, an agenda of a halachically committed and moderate and traditional Judaism that has a love of God, a love of Torah, a love of Am Yisrael and the land of Israel, a love for all of humanity, and also understands the needs of the hour. And I really appreciate your talking with me and all that you do. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences.
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>